HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Underground Meats, an American producer of handcrafted salami and cured meats in Madison, Wisconsin. For more information, visit shop.undergroundfoodcollective.org or stop by their butcher shop in Madison, Wisconsin. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday from roughly 12 to 12.45, joined today by Anastasia de Hammer Lopez with Jack, Joe, and Eddie in the engineering booth. How you guys doing? Hey, you, you're pretty revved up today, huh? Well, it's so freaking hot out that, like, I don't know, my body, now that it's cool in the air conditioning here, has all this, I don't know, extra energy it was using to cool itself. I don't know. I don't know. I made that up. Interesting. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We hope to be joined soon, correct, Nastasha? Right. With, uh, you know, one of our favorite all-time people, Harold McGee, great master blaster of uh, science as it relates to uh, making things delicious. He is actually en route now from his hotel in Manhattan to the Heritage Radio Network studios here in Brooklyn. So we'll see how long that takes. It's actually a really crappy time to travel from Manhattan because they're always working on the freaking bridge. Everyone takes the bridge, and they're always working on it. You guys notice that? He's taking a subway. Subway. What's that? The the traffic sucks from here to from Manhattan to here uh, around noontime. Sucks. I think he's making a joke because he never goes. To oh, the oh, I get it. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Nastasia. Uh, I see. I don't understand people who don't go to Manhattan. Like you know what I mean? Like you know, we're traveling out here in the in greater in greater Brooklyn. Um. So anyway, so should we hit some questions before uh, he shows up? Sure. Anything cool happening, Nastasia? No. Nothing? Why don't we hit some questions? All right. I have, a, I have one little message. I was at Bonnaroo with Heritage Radio and Roberta's, and it was all crazy and everything, and we got a little message from a friend that I'm going to play. Yo, yo, Jeremiah Bullfrog here at Bonnaroo, hanging out with Heritage Radio. Y'all know the deal. I love myself some Jeremiah Bullfrog. He's the he's the, uh, the king of the Miami food trucks, if I'm not mistaken. Gastropod. Gastropod. He's a good man. Good man. I uh, met him a number of years ago back when I used to teach at the French Culinary Institute, back when it was called the French Culinary Institute, before it became the International Culinary Center. Right, Nastasha? Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Have, uh, first of all, a shout-out to Jack and some information about the museum from Kate. Hello, everyone. I have two questions, if you don't mind, but uh, first I'd like to apologize because I'm still catching up on the backlog of cooking issues, so I apologize if you've covered these topics already. Please do not feel obliged to listen to our back catalog. Right, Stas? Right. <laughs> uh, I realize... Oh, wait a second. Uh, she says, uh, I realize this website for MOFAD, that's the Museum of Food and Drink, uh, is updated and looking good. Uh, I'll check the website once in a while and hope that more is developed. I would be so excited if it happened, as I live in Brooklyn, love cooking and museums. I do work in the nonprofit sector, so I understand that it takes a tremendous amount of work to get them going. I am down to help in any way possible. I sent an email to them with an offer to volunteer if needed, whatever it takes to get those doors open. I enjoyed the Southern Food and Beverage Museum uh, so much when it was in New Orleans, and was, when I was in New Orleans, it's about time New York has a spot of their own. I'm sure working alongside the New York Historical Society could be fun too, as they recently had a beer exhibit. Well, good news. Uh, two good news is one, Kate, we are going to have a Kickstarter launching. When does? Uh, Saturday. Saturday, mm-hmm. uh, Kickstarter for the Museum of Food and Drink. So there's going to be a lot happening and a lot uh, to uh, look at and a lot to look for. So please, everyone, look out. We're going to put it on Twitter Blast, but the Museum of Food and Drink Kickstarter on the Puffing Gun is going to be up 
within a week, I'm told by Nastasha. She knows all these sorts of things. Uh, and the second piece of good news I have for you is that Harold McGee is now in the studio. Is this the first time you've been on the show live? Uh, by phone. By phone, yeah. By phone. In person. In first person, first time, yes. So, listen, Trump suckers. <laughs> this is your chance to call in uh, personal questions to Harold McGee at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. And congratulations to all you recent graduates out there. Okay. Uh, and uh, and Jack, you might be interested in this before, before we start up. Uh, Kate also said, I just listened to the Cooking Issues episode that was recorded right after Valentine's Day, and I can't help myself but let Jack know that I would have inquired about a potential Valentine's date. He sounds sweet, funny, and interesting. I'm flattered. Yeah? yeah. I'm, I'm also taken now. Though. Oh, man. Kate, you're too late. Yeah. Too late. Well, you never know, Jack. This, I mean, I don't, do I know your new girlfriend? Uh, no, you don't. So, it, so I can say this. Maybe, maybe it'll be over. Maybe there's room for Kate. <laughs> maybe it won't last. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I'm, getting the, I'm getting the I can't believe he's saying this shaking head look from uh, Nastasha. So, Harold, how you doing? I'm doing well, except for having taken the red eye and and uh, had problems with a hotel, but otherwise, great. What kind, what kind of problems? Uh, went to one place, no reservation. Went to the second place, no reservation. Damn. So, up in the air. And, uh, by the way, he is coming here directly off of the red eye, so this is probably the only chance that you have. I've never, like, he's never been tripped up, and he's never gotten angry at anyone. So, here is your... Here is your chance to maybe try either because you, we have with us a tired Harold McGee. Uh, but thanks so much. Thanks so much uh, for coming on the show. So, so uh, I have some questions. Uh, here's one that you might want to weigh in. Uh, Barry Casey writes in, please, ad- uh, please address factors that contribute to food aroma. Now, that's very broad, so I'm not going to ask you to do that because uh, you know, that's like a topic of a whole book that you're probably working on now. Uh, but uh, E.G., how can the aroma of almond chicken soup be enhanced and fill the room? And you've done some work with this in classes, with just simply with fans, right? Uh, yeah. Um, well, a bunch of different ways. Uh, that's certainly one of them. Heating the soup up so that it's um, uh, giving off as much vapor as possible. And it turns out that uh, if you have room to do it, uh, if, if the soup could use a little salt, salt will actually help drive aroma out of a food and into the air because it makes the, the food more polar, more uh, electrically charged, and aromas don't like that, so they, they get out into the air where they're more comfortable. Now, does that effect uh, reach a certain saturation point, or can you take a small portion of the soup, put it in a wide vessel? Presumably you want the soup in a very wide vessel, so you have maximum surface area. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, could you, could you punch that up and take a bit of it, put it in a super wide vessel, and just salt the bejesus out of it? <laughs> I've never tried that experiment. Worth trying. Yeah, I mean, if you have some extra soup yeah. lying about, yeah. you know, sacrifice a couple of ladles full in a frying pan with some salt and see whether or not you can really amp up the... Uh... Well, and frying pan, I mean, why not fry it? I mean, put put the heat on and, and boil it. That'll get it into the air even faster than just kind of letting it evaporate. I guess that's true, huh? I hadn't thought about that. But you might get bonding and stuff with the oils, right? No? No, I guess maybe. I don't know. Well, I, I don't mean fry-fry. I just oh, mean yeah. boil. Boil, yeah, yeah. yeah. Boil, bo- boil hard, use a fan, maximize surface area, right? It's all yeah. about volatility with that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the aroma is fairly simple. I mean, it's very, very complicated in how it's integrated, but fairly simple in that it's crap that goes up into the air. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And into your nose. Yeah. It has and if, to be in the, in the air first. Right. And, you know, if you want to cheat, I mean, people have done things like put things in vaporizers and actually volatilize them. Or you could um, uh, use ultrasonic humidifiers actually don't boil things. They create uh, tiny kind of mist droplets that can carry heavier molecules with them. So you could use an ultrasonic humidifier. But on chicken almond soup, I think that's going to be kind of a nightmare. Yeah. It needs to be water thin for that to work. <laughs> um, other, another thing you can do. Not fill a room, but uh, the Japanese are very fond when they have their soups of covering their soups with a bowl on the way to the table uh, with uh, an inverted, like a smaller bowl, and it has the effect of concentrating the headspace directly above the soup. So then the person grabs the uh, the lid, lifts it, and the soup wafts up into their uh, nose, and they get the uh, the full aroma of it. And that's how the Japanese get away with having relatively underflavored broths. Boom, boom. Uh, but the uh, uh, it's a little you know a, a little little dig at the Japanese broth there. But the, uh, but right or no? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and you don't get, uh, if you can smell it coming, 
then your nose is already beginning to get adapted to it, right? It's it knows what's coming. It's it's going to say, okay, yeah, that's that's chicken almond soup. But if you present it with no fanfare, you just open it up, and there it is, powerfully. It's a much more uh, intense experience. An excellent point that I hadn't thought of, and the reason why we should have Harold McGee here all the time, all the time. Uh, yeah, in fact, you know, it's interesting point. Uh, Modern cooking, when I say modern, modern American home cooking is uh, all about kind of integrating the kitchen with, uh, with the dining experience. And part of that is because people who wouldn't ordinarily 80 or 100 years ago be cooking, you know, people who are actually kind of running the house now, take pride in, in, in what they're cooking. So they want to be integrated in with their guests and have it. And so it's become part of this, you know, aroma of the kitchen is considered a positive thing. Whereas, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, it would be you'd be horrified to smell what was going on in the kitchen in your house. It would be hor- yeah. horrific, a sign of you know poverty and disgust. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and although I definitely fall in the more modern camp, it is interesting to, the idea that maybe you could have, in certain circumstances, a much more powerful presentation if they didn't smell it until the moment they were going to cook yeah. it, eat yeah. it rather. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So so maybe you want one kind of uh, wafty, welcoming aroma. Uh, but that should be not something that you're actually going to serve at the dinner. Best of both worlds. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, Joel writes in. By the way, Joel, if you're listening, this is Joel of the uh, of the heavy of the you know metal version of cooking issues. Writes in uh, with a rib problem. Your idol Harold McGee is here. Did you ever hear his song he sang to you? No. We'll play it for you later. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm sure Jack has it here in the archives. Uh, Joel here, a cooking issues personal performance artist. Uh, still wicked excited to hear my song being used and pumping up the Heritage Radio airwaves. And still waiting to hear more about the Sears All Attachment Progress. The deal with it is we're just trying to figure out, uh, like, my partners are a little worried about safety and people burning themselves is really the main issue. And so we're, that's what we're dealing with. Right, Stas? Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I would be more than happy to be a tester and would like to report back my findings. On to my question regarding low temperature short ribs. Boneless, but first here are the specifics. 40 pounds of ribs at 57 degrees Celsius, which is roughly 135 Fahrenheit for you Fahrenheit heads out there. I cooked them for 60 hours uh, and the bag contents were seared, unsalted meat, reduced red wine, raw mirepoix, herbs, reduced chicken stock, uh, cold in the walk-in for a few days. All items bagged at room temperature and vacuum sealed and placed into two separate preheated baths and covered for 60 hours and left to run for the weekend unattended. Uh, results. Uh, one bath of bags came out great. No sign of bacterial growth or off smell. I ate about six ounces and I'm feeling fine, as you should, because it's safe. <laughs> um, I'm also researing and bringing them up to temp uh, uh, the good portion of the meat. All the bags in the second bath were puffed to near explosion. I opened one bag and it smelled like death and gym socks. Good combo. Uh, pretty close to what my grease trap smells like. Besides the few hundred dollars worth of meat I threw away, the only thing I can take away from this is to turn into a learning experience for myself and my team. So I need help finding out what happened. I know it's hard to figure out if both baths were at a constant temperature since I left them unattended, but both bags were plugged into the same outlet and running when I returned. Although that's no sign of anything because they can turn off and they can turn back on again like a plug can get unkicked. Uh, by the way, in the future, never plug two circulators into the same outlet. It's possible that they'll continue running and then it's also quite possible that you'll blow a circuit. Like very possible that you blow a circuit because uh, even a 20-amp circuit, like, I mean, they're not running for the same – they're not running full bore all the time. But you, I've more than – I've on more than three occasions seen people do that and have circuits blow. Uh, even even on a 20. You just never know, so don't do it. Um, but both bags were plugged into the same outlet and running when I returned. Here's my thinking. Chicken stock is possibly too much age on it being the culprit. Do not think that was the culprit. Uh, I kept my vac-, vac bags very close to my baking area in my kitchen where I use natural starters. This may have caused a reaction from uh, reason for microbes to find their way into the bag. I do not think so. Uh, one circulator may be off calibration. This is possible. You should calibrate your cir- circulators with ice waters. The very first batch of the new style of circulators had an issue where it was very easy to set the temperature offset incorrectly and have problems. Uh, so it could be a possibility, but it's fairly unlikely because I think I know what happened. Uh, <laughs> red wine causing some pickling or fermentation, not the culprit. Uh, cross-contamination, also not the culprit. Uh, I've heard that blanching the bags at a much higher temperature is a good safety step. I'll try that next time. Help me, help me, please. Love, Joel. Uh, you have a couple of problems. One, 
you put raw mirepoix in the bag. Raw mirepoix has a lot of air in it, and so unless you suck for a super long amount of time, there was probably a lot of residual air left in the mirepoix. As you started cooking, it started heating. The air migrated out of the mirepoix, creating uh, an uh, air gap in your bag. You probably had a further complication that the bags were very tightly packed together. That's a lot of meat to be putting into two circulators at the same time, right? So if they're packed tightly together and then you get any air, you have two major insulating effects in your bag. As the air puffs up, you're also taking up more space, and it's more difficult for the water to get into the center of the bags. As that happens, if your bags don't get up to bacteria-killing temperature within a couple of hours, you're going to get lactic acid bacteria growing in the bag. The lactic acid bacteria is going to create some awful, disgusting, funky smells and cause the bag to blow and puff, right? Uh, And then subsequent cooking will actually probably kill those bacteria over a long period of time because they probably won't survive at those high temperatures. However, it's too late. The meat's already ruined and the bag's already puffed. So a couple of things you can do. uh, One good way to uh, deal with over-cramped bags is to, like you say, put them into simmering water for a minute or two to kill all the bacteria on the outside and start the cooking. Looks like we have a caller. We have a caller? Oh, we have Patrick. Patrick's going crazy with the I got the caller. Patrick, come on in here, you crazy, crazy... Harold McGee? Here is Patrick, our, our founder, hey, Patrick geniuses. Martin. I feel like a com- I, I feel dull-witted in this room right now. <laughs> wow. The three, three of you guys. Wow. Yeah, have a seat. Have a right seat. Looking at you. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Talk so, slow. So uh, there's another mic, Patrick. Why don't you sit over here? Climb over well, here. I won't clean, but did I interrupt the show? <laughs> poquito, poquito. Okay, so here we go. Uh, so... Uh, you can dip them in very hot water, like 85C simmering water, to kill the bacteria on the outside. You can start the cooking in a combi oven and then throw them in to finish. Uh, and just don't overcrowd them in general. If you cook the mirepoix, the, uh, the air cells will get ruptured as the vegetables shrink down. And you also get less puffing from the air, and you can suck a hard vacuum. Don't be afraid, by the way, to salt your ribs before you put them in the bag because they're being cooked for a long time, and you don't want a fresh steak, steak texture on them anyhow. And also, over-reduce your stock, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, you want to t- should we take a quick break so we sure. can come back with Maximum Harold McGee? Sure. Quick break. And today's break song is The Hustle by Alan Wilkes and you are listening to Cooking Issues on heritageradionetwork.org. Underground Meats is an American producer of handcrafted salami and cured meats in Madison, Wisconsin. They use small farms from southwest Wisconsin to source their meat. The animals are raised on pasture for their entire lives by farmers who care about animal welfare. While Underground Meats uses European traditions, they also use ingredients from the upper Midwest to try to create new types of salamis, experimenting with both ingredients and techniques. The salamis are made using heritage breeds, mostly red wattles, tamworts, berkshires, and mule fits. Try their award-winning cured pork shoulder and goat salami. To learn more and purchase products, visit shop.undergroundfoodcollective.org or stop by their butcher shop in Madison, Wisconsin. And we're back with Cooking Issues. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So Harold and I were talking about one of your questions, and so we might as well talk about it on the air. Paul writes in on honey and fruit. Hey, Cooking Issues crew, just sending you a link about using honey water to stop fruit from browning. I thought it was an interesting alternative to ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C, different from citric acid. Remember that, people. Everyone always makes that mistake. You notice that, Harold? No. Really? You don't make that mistake. But people, well, when I'm teaching people, they're always like, I bought, the, I bought the citric acid and it didn't work. I'm like, no. 
with vitamin C. It's ascorbic <laughs> acid. Citric acid will prevent browning somewhat by lowering the pH, but not nearly as much as ascorbic acid, which is an yeah. actual, actual antioxidant. Yeah. So the video in question uh, is by uh, Rebecca Marsters on America's Test Kitchen, and it's available even if you don't pay. So you can go look at it. And what she does is she soaks uh, – Slices of uh, apple in uh, – well, I don't know what she uses because I don't remember, but the, the paper, relevant papers say about a 10 percent honey solution. So, Harold, you want to talk about this for a minute? Uh, sure. This came as news to both of us that, that honey would do this. Um, but uh, a couple of things. One of the reasons I think we haven't heard more about honey is that uh, the experiment – well, suggested that there were peptides, pieces of proteins that were responsible for this, and the people who wrote the paper in 1990 saying that honey would uh, inhibit browning said they were going to follow up on that and find out which peptides were responsible, and it's been radio silence from them ever since, so it never got followed up on. And then there was a paper in 2000 that did follow up on the honey, but said that they got really variable results depending on which honey they used. Some were good, some were not so good. So I think my guess is if you actually did a, an ascorbic acid honey side-by-side, side, probably ascorbic acid would be more reliable. Right. Well, I forget which one it was. I read another paper on the various different – I mean ascorbic acid is also interesting because it can actually reverse some of the, some of the browning after it's already occurred. But they said also some of the honeys – I mean it's really conflicting information. Just to be clear though, the paper from 1990 – uh, specifies clover honey, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. you think clover honey is more likely to work than other types of honey, or no? Yeah, I don't know. Don't know. Hard to say. Good, yeah. good thing for you know somebody to follow up on. Yeah. Oh, and uh, by the way, honey is, a, and I didn't really. I mean, I've always, you know, like I don't, I don't know whether I ascribe. Do you ascribe to this whole uh, local uh, allergen honey dealio or no? Uh, I don't know about that one. Where if if you uh, show up in a place and you're going to have uh, seasonal allergies in that place, you just pound uh-huh. some honey from that place and it, it wipes out your seasonal allergies from huh. that place. I wish I'd known that two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know whether it's true or not, but this is an often held belief. But uh-huh. I have no uh-huh. idea about the efficacy of said thing. But yeah. honey is a miracle. Uh, honey syrup is an incredible foam-forming agent in cocktails uh, hmm. because of the extra proteins. Uh, so we use that in conjunction with um, – our, some of our milk wash drinks at the at the rest at the bar to uh, get really dense heads of foam. Uh-huh. That was Piper's call. Piper came up with that. Are there any concentrated feeding operations for bees where like bees get overused or yeah, don't well, have the room to do what they need to do? Well, I mean, I, I don't think that the, the bees aren't. I mean, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't go crying about you know go overcrowding on bees. They kind of that's how they groove like they on overcrowding and like keeping their temperature up in the winter by being close to each other and buzzing. And also how they kill uh how they kill uh giant uh the giant hornets uh you know by glomming onto them and shaking so hard that they heat them up and kill them. So uh bees don't have the same problems with overcrowding that we do, although they will swarm out of their colony if if, if they're too crowded, they'll swarm. Uh, but yes, so if you talk to natural honey producers, as I have done, remember that lady who chewed our ear off, Stas? Anyway, natural yeah, honey producer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like anyway, my point is, is that uh, like the the big thing that they hate is is uh, feeding them sugar water to tide them over on the winter. That's what uh, the mm-hmm. honey producers are like. Eh, I don't feed my bees any sugar water. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Ruins the honey. Anyway, but uh, so yeah, I mean, and then the other problems with bees, obviously. I mean. Uh, the other problems with bees is if you, if you like when they're stored too close together. I don't. I am not up. I haven't been up on the uh, colony collapse uh, papers in uh, for about probably five years or something like that. But um, you know, they used to think that overcrowding and uh, too close a proximity of commercial hives was part of the spread of colony collapse. Do you know anything about modern? Uh, modern Actually, pa- you're mentioning the sugar water uh, is interesting because <clears throat> the the latest I've heard is that you know it's probably. Lots of different things, these mites and a virus and crowding and pesticides and all that kind of thing. But one of them is the fact that uh, uh, it's become more and more common to feed bees on either sugar water or high fructose corn syrup. And and what they found is that honey actually has lots of stuff in it that's good for bee health. And if you deprive them of that and just give them sugar water or high fructose corn syrup – they're going to get sick. So the, the idea is give them enough honey to feed themselves, and maybe things will get better. And no allergies for the bees either. <laughs> no, nothing, nothing. No problems with that. Hey, did you know, I just read this, but I don't know if it's true, certain linden flowers are irresistible to bees but toxic to them? No. Uh, i got to research more. That might be crap, but I read it somewhere. <laughs> but it could be crap because many things that I read are. Here's one that uh, you might want to ch- chime in on. I have a good recommendation for where to go look at it, but – 
Uh, Joe Blow, which is like kind of the best. Well, well they're Joe Blow sixty seven, but it's a good. Uh, it's a good. What's it called? It's a tweet, tweeter, tweeter name. Uh, uh, love the podcast, Quickie. Why does OJ taste so horrible after I brush my teeth? Well, uh, the go to www.bitesize with a Y, as in small, like as in bits and bites. Uh, BitesizeScience.com, the American Chemical Society, of which Harold is a member and re- a regular speaker for their things. They have a, a web series of short videos on science that people might find of interest, and they did one on this. And they say that it's the sodium lauryl sulfate in toothpaste that uh, that A, suppresses sweetness, and B, washes off the phospholipids. So it suppresses sweetness and enhances your ability to taste bitter. You ever hmm. uh, read anything on that? No. No. Yeah. Interesting. I did read a paper uh, by commercial uh, commercial tasting thing where people who you know we're apt to brush our teeth in the morning because that's what we do, and they show up to work and they need to taste, and they actually cancel the effect of the toothpaste and get them ready for tasting by pounding several glasses of OJ. So there are some <laughs> studies on that, but uh, I, I recommend you, uh, Joe Blow, to BitesizeScience.com. Interesting little website. All right. Can I interrupt with a question? Sure. Um, I'm always hypersensitive about how I eat, uh, you know, because I eat out a lot for my work, and my wife's in the food world too. So um, I always wonder about the effects of that on my health. And I read Michael Pollan's piece, Germs, and uh, I was wondering, I mean, should people who are worried about such things like – send their feces to that place in Colorado and and have them do studies on it and is it as important as DNA and all of that your is your poop as important as your DNA well they say the mi- microbia that lives in your stomach you know and that there's this new budding science and i was just so interested that he likened that microbia to DNA in terms of importance for its effects on human health and i was wondering is that True. I mean, is, was gonna, that a real seminal piece that people I'm going to go ahead and toss this one to Harold. <laughs> I know it's a crazy question, but no, because uh, in fact, you read more and more about that in in scientific journals these days as well. And that's, I think, where Michael Pollan got the the lead for this. My my feeling is that we're just beginning to understand how important the the gut microbes are and what to make of them. And at the moment, what we kind of know is that. People in different states of health have very different communities down there, but uh, whether it's possible to change them quickly or over time by changes in diet or whether changing them more drastically by taking little pills with lots and lots of them yeah, is a good idea, we, we have no clue. I think we're, we're still figuring that out. And, and also to say that it's as important as DNA, let me put it this way. You can, for all intents and purposes, wipe out a good chunk of your uh, gut microflora by intensive antibiotic regimes or like super sickness plus antibiotic regimes. I mean, I've gotten like I. This it's not microflora, but I, you know, I I had a, a situation once where I was so cleaned out that I was lactose intolerant for a, like a week and a half because I had no enzymes left in my body. Mm-hmm. Uh, but fact of the matter is, you can reestablish those colonies. If I were to uh, supply enough radiation to you to destroy <laughs> your DNA, very difficult to reconstitute. <laughs> very, very, very difficult to reconstitute. Right. Yeah. So let's leave DNA at the top of the heap, but maybe microbes are right up there, you know, just just underneath. I mean, there are, there are plenty of things that are completely necessary, but not as um, critical from an everyday standpoint. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. We've got a caller, Dave. Like water. It's right up there with DNA. Hey, caller, you're on the air. <laughs> Hi, Dave. Hey, this is Johnny Clark from Memphis, Tennessee. How are you doing? All right. How you doing? I'm doing good. I was looking for some advice on um, the addition of mascarpone to cheesecake. Uh, I was working with three pounds of cream cheese, uh, five pounds of mascarpone, and anywhere from two to three eggs per pound of cheese. And sometimes when I cut through it, it it appears broken. Um, any advice on, you know, maybe maltodextrin, cornstarch, flour addition, and sous vide time and temp? Um, gotcha. Yeah, well, I've never mean mean like uh, when you say sous vide, you mean like in a in a CVAP or something like that. I've never put a cheesecake in a bag, although I'm sure you could. There's no reason why you oh, can't. I, I, yeah, I just bag it and circulate it and for all right, a couple you, hours. You were doing it in the tubes, right? You were doing it in the tubes. No, I was just 
Well, I was just doing it in uh, three or four small bags, and after um, like two and a half hours, pull it out and pipe it into the molds, the silica molds. Well, I would imagine mascarpone has a higher water content, and the water in it is less bound than it would be in cream cheese. Wouldn't you think so, Harold? Yeah, yeah. And so I would guess that it would be a lot looser under all conditions. I mean, um, can you hang mascarpone to firm it up a little bit? Uh, you probably could. I'd, what I don't know is, you know, how much you'd be left with. You know, would that be an economical thing to do? If it if it only that's leaks, where, that's where I was thinking tapia. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't use. I mean, if you're going to go to maltodextrin, I mean, maltodextrin doesn't supply a lot of thickening power. You might want to go to an actual starch. You know what I mean? Something that's uh, has a little more thickening power to it. I mean, malt, maltodextrin is more of a bulking agent, so that when you dry something back out again, you're going to have more bulk. I mean, I think yeah. that the addition of a starch to it to thicken it up, maybe. I mean, you can up your egg quantity a little bit, which is, I think, what they do in uh, in the Italian cheesecakes that are ricotta based, right? Don't they mm-hmm. up the egg content in those things? I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a long you time. Know, yep. You know, ratio on what they do for that? I don't. I don't. But I mean, like the classic Italian style cheesecakes are using a much looser cheese without all the. You know, they're using. Ricotta-based, typically things which are going to be—they have a grainier texture. I happen to love them. I happen to love those yeah. uh, those styles of cheesecakes, but um, I don't make them myself. But they're typically much grainier, and I would imagine they're bound with a higher egg proportion. I mean, they taste like they're bound with a higher egg proportion. Yeah. So I would up your eggs. I would move to perhaps a starch, one that has a good thickening power, maybe one that doesn't require uh, a complete boil to activate. So maybe something like potato that has a lot of swelling, but then it's not going to hold as much eventually. Mm-hmm. It might break. I don't know. I'd have to think about the starch that you're going to use. Um, but I would I would definitely add a starch to it. What do you think, Harold? Yeah. No, I agree. I also think that it's the kind of thing where you're just not going to know for sure without trying it. Yeah. I've done uh, a few test runs and – uh, cornstarch and AP flour. I'm just looking for any other starch suggestions as well. Hey, you can, you could, you uh, could use uh, to, to to get around the problem of the temperature if, if you're doing it sous vide because you might not be functionalizing the starch. You might want to use a uh, pre-agglomerated, I mean, an agglomerated pre-cooked starch, like uh, um, not ultra text but ultra sperse. Yeah, Wondra. Wondra could work. Okay. That's pre-cooked. But like ultra spurs or something like that because uh, uh, Wondra is still going to have all of the like, – it's going to have a more of a flowery note to it because it's, it's flower, whereas the ultra spurs is going to be more neutral. And you can pick – I think you can pick up ultra spurs from the uh, guys at uh, uh, modernistpantry.com. Okay. Yeah. But give it a shot. Let us know what happens. Uh, what's the percentage of ultra spurs? Jeez, I don't know. I think it's, a lot depends on how much water you need to bind, right? Because it's the ultra, the, it's it's the it's uh, it's the percentage of ultra spurs compared to the free water that's available in the mascarpone. But I mean, I wouldn't guess that you'd probably need to add more than a percent or two, right? Well, I mean, because yeah. because okay. if it's almost set, right, then you don't need to add that much. I mean, a lot depends on how much you need to bind up. You okay. could also just cheat. You could just cheat and set the stuff as a gel. I mean, cheat. You know what I mean? Like, there you, you go. Yeah, you know, uh, like use like, uh, I don't know, like make a f- fluid gel uh, or, or any sort of gel, have it set up. You know, if you could do a, you could do a, you could do like an iota carrageenan or a, or a kappa that will melt in the, in the thing. You could pipe it while it's hot. It'll set into a gel and you're done. Very light gel. You know what I mean? And especially because there's dairy in there, you could use a very small percentage of carrageenan and have it set up pretty nicely. So you wouldn't use uh, carrageenan and ultraspirus, right? I'd probably try one or the other to see how they work and okay. uh, see what the texture uh, difference is, but might try that. Okay. I appreciate you. All right. Good luck. Y'all have a good day. All right. You too. You too. All right. We have a question in from uh, Brian regarding mustarda. You like mustarda? You're the uh, Italian uh, fruit-based kind? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Me too. I haven't had it in a long, long time. Because no one else in my family, Jen likes it, my wife, but my kids, you know, are not big on it. You like that stuff, Stas? Yeah, I mean, the cherries and the pears and that kind of gelatinous uh, no man's land, just like floating around. Yeah, yeah. In a syrup, we like to call that like a syrup or a jelly. Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, they make one from watermelon rinds that I really like. Um, but anyway, 
Uh, Brian it's writes. It's meant to be eaten, is it? All the you don't eat all the gel. You just eat the fruit, and it. I, I put mean, this stuff on bread with cheese. I just eat the whole guy, the whole damn part, thing. Yeah. Part of it. Okay. You, Harold? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a condiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there you go. Uh, hello, Cooking Issues team. Hope you guys and gals are staying cool. Uh, we are not. It is hot as hell. Not in the studio, but it's nasty out. Okay. After some research, I discovered that true mustarda does not contain mustard powder or mustard seed, but mustard essential oil, which they call sinape in Italy. Sinape? How do you pronounce that? Sinape. Oh, thank, thank you, Patrick. With the, with the Italian. Uh, apparently, this is such strong stuff that only pharmacists in Italy sell it, uh, or as Shola from Studio Kitchen, dot, uh, blog, uh, Studio Kitchen Blog does, use a rotovap to extract it from mustard oil. Do you have a source for this product or a substitute? What does Cesare or Mark say about this? I didn't have a chance to speak to them. Did you speak to Mark about this? Nope. Thanks. Good job. You got only... I uh, whatever. Okay. Uh, whatever, whatever. I mean, we missed right, Okay, okay. Uh, th- uh, thanks again for your awesomeness, Brian. Okay, so uh, mustard essential oil is available on the internet on eBay from uh, Nival, com- the company's Nival, N I V A L, pure essential mustard oil. Uh, it's available on eBay and also from EssentialDepot.com in Florida, but that stuff's expensive. Let me just say that there's two things. If you go to like a, an Indian rest, uh, Indian mart, like uh, you know, like Calustians here in the city, or dual specialty shop in the city, anyone, is, you can buy stuff called mustard oil. That's pressed pressed mustard oil, and that stuff it can be pungent or cannot be pungent. It's all labeled as uh, not for human consumption because of you know it contains what is it? It's, it's something. I have it here on the thing somewhere. I can't remember. Erucic er, uh, acid, yeah, acid, yeah. Yep. a fatty acid that causes problems in mice, but apparently not in people. But we haven't gotten around it. Right? Yeah. I mean, cultures have been using it for thousands of years internally, and it hasn't seemed to be a problem. But we're worried about it. So yeah, can't can't have it. Yeah. But here's the bad news: mustard oil in because uh, I purchased it. Mustard oil uh, in Indian uh, stores, or I guess Korean. Uh, I guess they use it in Korea as well. Hmm. Um, Bangladesh, a bunch of other places. Uh, it's just not that strong. It's just not – I mean it's got some sort of mustard thing to it. But ha- I once had a pure vial of the mustard essential oil that was given to me uh, by a, a Japanese gent. And that stuff is ridiculous, like two drops <laughs> in, like, in, in, in like your mashed potatoes and they're like completely mustarded up. You know what I mean? It's like it's – like, this stuff's crazy because it's it's uh, distilled, but not distilled like Rotovap style with a bunch of water left over. Like distilled, the oil floats up to the top. You take the supernatant on the top of the stuff, and that's your mustard essential oil. And it's almost uh, – it's, it's some it's some like – I don't know, isothiocyanate, some sort of allium, de- de- you know, sulfur-derived thingamajig. So it distills quite well, uh, probably the same way that horseradish does, which distills like a demon. Uh, but um, yeah, I-, I would recommend – this stuff's really expensive, but it goes a long way. Buy it. I would buy it. I'm thinking now of buying it. I don't know whether this one's any good. Have you ever bought it, Harold? No, no, I haven't. Yeah, I mean, people swear on on Amazon. The best you're going to get because I looked for a while is mustard oil, like pressed mustard oil, not mustard uh-huh. essential oil. Right? It's not the same. You have to like dump a whole boatload of that into your mustarda. To uh, <laughs> what's your favorite kind of mustarda? You like them all? Uh, I I think actually the pear. You know the the grit goes really nicely with the with the heat. Yeah, I think nice with a with, yeah. a, with a nice pecorino. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't Mark say that Goulden's is the best mustard ever made? I think you just said that today. Yeah. <laughs> really? Uh-huh. For real? Did yeah. you just make that up? No, it's in my book. Uh, he, and uh, uh, Marion Cunningham, who was James Beard's assistant, said that uh, Hellman's is the best mayo. Why would you ever make a mayo? Nothing could ever taste better than Hellman's. Uh. So it's the thing that it was. Uh, the essay was don't make ketchup. Unless it's really better than Heinz. If it's not better than Heinz, just also serve Heinz. Well, anyone who's listened to the backlog here knows that Nastasha doesn't care about different brands of ketchup, which is one of the, my main gripes with her, is that she doesn't see that there is possibly a difference between different brands of ketchup. And I haven't tried the new fancy stuff yet from Portland, the fancy ketchup from Portland. However, uh, uh, Heinz, it makes a delicious ketchup. Let's just be clear on that. that in, it, what's your opinion on Heinz ketchup? It's delicious, but there's uh, somebody in San Francisco who makes a nice one too. June Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. June June makes a nice ketchup. Yeah. Yeah. It it's different. You wouldn't mistake it for Heinz, but it's delicious. Is it ketchup in like the eighteen twenty cents of mustard? I mean, uh, uh, not mustard, uh, uh, mushroom based ketchup. Or is uh, it no, no, it's tomato ketchup. Tomato based, but with with more of the spices showing. Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, you know what I'm about to get myself in trouble for? Because I always bust Nastasha for stuff that she doesn't like. But you know what? I actually – it's not that I don't like it, but I'm not a huge fan of – or I don't care about it. Here's something I don't care about. I don't care that much about the nuances of different barbecue sauces. I don't. I mean I, I see that there are differences. Uh-huh. But to me, they're all fundamentally ketchup, molasses, and, and like vinegar and sugar and stuff, right? Yeah. Am I wrong yeah. about this? Yeah. No, I'd, I'd agree with you. Yeah. I care more about the base ketchup uh-huh. in the barbecue sauce. Yeah. Although uh, Paul Prudhomme has an excellent recipe from the mid-1980s that uses a lot of ground-up nuts in a barbecue sauce. It is pretty good. Ground-up nuts? Yeah, really good, actually. Huh. Yeah, pretty good. What kind of nuts? Uh, I don't remember because uh, my mom used to make it all the time back in the day. I'm going to say it was uh, – Pecans, I guess. Probably. Yeah. yeah, although he probably subbed out for Northerners when he was right. This is back when Paul Prudhomme had uh, had just recently opened K-Pauls in, in Louisiana, and mm-hmm. he was still famous for sticking really red-hot uh, peppers into uh, – into, uh, liquor and calling them Cajun martinis and back before everyone had, you know, blackened this, that and everything, he came yeah. out with a cookbook early on that uh-huh. I think was pretty influential. Uh-huh. Yeah, my mom used to cook at it all the time. So I have to admit, but you know, whatever. Uh, speaking of old school, Christopher Miltz writes in because I guess because of the Searsall torch that I'm working on and wants to know uh, if we've watched the old uh, Julia Child episode where she goes on uh, David Letterman and they don't have equipment that works and so she has to – she was going to make a hamburger and melt the cheese with a torch, which the Searsall is great at by the way, uh, and instead has to make beef tartare and David Letterman is being vicious to her the whole time. Have you seen this? No, but he's always vicious to the chefs. Yeah, I mean, but Julia Child, I mean, like, this is 1987, so she was probably, what, in her 70s? Late 70s? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he's just, like, ripping her up and down, and she's, like, taking it completely as a good sport and is every bit as quick on her feet <laughs> as uh, Letterman is. She's, like, uh, it's, you know, it's, I kind of wish that I had met her. Uh, you, made, you met her a couple times, right? Yeah, I did, yeah. I did. And and had dinner with her once, and felt after, and this was when she was in her eighties, uh, and afterwards felt just totally inadequate because she had read, you know, ten books I hadn't read, and seen ten movies that I hadn't seen, and I just couldn't keep up. She was an amazing woman. Yeah, and uh, a spy during World War Two. Yeah, interesting, yeah. interesting character. I haven't seen that movie based on. Well, I haven't seen the movie. I don't. I don't, I don't Anyway, uh, J. Matthew Miller writes in about Arancello. Do you like Arancello? I'm not a big Limoncello fan. Do you like Limoncello or Arancello? Arancello being the orange-based uh, variant of it? Every once in a while. It's, it's sweet, and uh, my problem with it, it's Limoncello, and again, I'm going to get in trouble now. Now, what is this? It's the episode where it's like, well, it's, it's a little bit sometimes detergenty for my taste. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. They make Arancello in Italy? I mean, the- with using their red oranges or blood red oranges or something? I don't know. I haven't had it over there. I've only been to the north of Italy. They don't play that game. Yeah, they do not. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I haven't been south of Rome, much to my my chagrin. Okay, I've made some uh, calamondin, which you might out there also know as calamansi, which is sold mostly green, but is in fact orange when it ripens. Okay, I've made some calamondin arancello from calamondin peels. Of course you did, because what else would you make it from? Uh, grown in my yard. I soak the peels. Uh, the fruit have almost no p- pith. In 190 proof Everclear for seven days. Then mix with equal parts one-to-one simple syrup. Uh, uh, see, that's sweet. That's some sweet. The resulting product is pretty good, but a little bit stiff by itself. Next time, I'll probably add more water. Anyway, I've been storing it in some mason jars, and I get a dark orange ring where the surface of the liquid meets the glass of the mason jar just around the edge. It is really tiny but noticeable. What's going on here? Is this excess citrus oil? Yes. Uh, what can I do to prevent this from happening? Nah. <laughs> On my next batch, my tree produces three times a year. I want to make enough to give his gifts, but the ring around the mason jar makes the end product less appealing. Thanks for your help. J. Matthew Miller. Yep, that's the oil coming out when you're diluting it because you can uh, absorb more of that stuff into alcohol than you can into water, and that's it. Right, Harold? I mean, that's, that's what it is. Yeah, and thanks to all the sweetness, the density of the liquid is pretty high, and the oil is that much lighter, and so it's going to pop up to the surface. Good call. So maybe making it a little less sweet, you can get around it. That's it. Yeah, that's a good – I see. Again, I hadn't thought of that. Here's the things I thought of. Don't go and try to f- buy brominated vegetable oil, which is what everyone used to use back in the day to keep citrus oils in suspension and things like sodas. See, what happens is they add bromine to vegetable oil. It's extre- exceedingly heavy. It gets in close contact with the citrus oil, and the average of them makes them kind of float around and makes it cloudy. And that's how they made things like uh, sunkist uh, soda uh, you know, work. 
Uh, you're not. They don't use it anymore uh, much. They use something that you also can't buy, which is uh, sucrose diacetate uh, hexoisobutyrate uh, SAIB, which is a sucroester derivative. But also probably can't buy that. Here's what I suggest you do: uh, either reduce the sweetness, um, try that. Also, put it. Get one of those old school like. Uh, who makes them? Lipton sun tea things. One of those giant iced tea coolers that has a spigot at the bottom. Uh, put your product into it, your entire batch. Let it sit for a week and a half or more after you've diluted it. The ring will form around the top, then drain it from the bottom. Right? Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. 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 See, Harold's thinking about it from an actual kind of thinking standpoint. I'm just thinking the mechanics of what to get around it. That's, that's the, therein lies the difference. Uh, okay. Now, we have a question in uh, from Will about sours, uh, whiskey sours, and uh, zucchini. Word to Dave, Nastasha, Jack, Joe, and the new guy in the booth. I guess that's you, Eddie. Howdy. That's you? Eddie. Yep. Uh, I've got two questions I'm hoping you can help me with. The first is a cocktail problem. I want a pre-batch whiskey sours for the 4th of July. I like mine with egg whites, and I make designs on the foam with various bitters and eyedropper bottles and a chopstick. I use simple syrup that has gum arabic for a better mouthfeel and a strong rye for a better flavor. What I want to do is pre-mix and dilute the sour and then run in a blender with dry ice to chill for service and top with an egg white foam, decorate, and serve. I've got a whisk that goes into a power drill for stick mixer-like effects, egg white, xanthan gum, uh, gum arabic, and nox gelatin, etc. How can I get a good foam without an ISI? I have not yet incorporated gelatin, but my efforts up to now have resulted in foam that is too stiff to decorate well with bitters and tends to break when added to the sour. I've seen many people online suggesting that cocktail foam should be its own fully realized beverage. I mean, yeah, I don't know about that. That uh, complements the underlying drink. That's true. In normal sours, the foam is essentially fully flavored by the drink, modified by the approximately half teaspoon of various bitters I decorate with. Do you have any suggestions on a direction to take the flavors for this foam? Looking for a direction to take my generally very tasty experimentation. Let's hit that before we go on to the next thing. One, be very careful blending dry ice into something with a blender because if you serve any chunks of dry ice to someone that they ingest, it can be extremely detrimental. That's one. Two, when you blend dry ice into a product, you will get a very light petillon carbonation in there, and you have to make sure that that's not going to hurt the flavor of your whiskey sour. That's two. So I, in general... I am somewhat loath to chill with uh, dry ice and blenders, although I've seen plenty of people do it, but I, it just makes me very nervous, uh, and I'm not – what are your thoughts on that, Harold? Any, any? Uh, I have no experience with it, and uh, but I take your point. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing is, remember, as you say, a normal cocktail – okay, so a normal cocktail with egg white in it, the thickening effect of the egg white is manifest uh, most visually by a foam on the surface. However, the body of the entire drink is changed by the protein addition. So you're not going to have the same drink by blending with dry what – you, what you're going to be doing is making a slushy and then putting a foam on top, which could be delicious by the way. I mean I would use liquid nitrogen instead and just get it slushed out. Because, but, but drinks that are slushy are so freaking cold, they're actually somewhat painful. Whiskey-flavored drinks actually taste best uh, when they're not so cold that they're slushed out, in my experience. right? Uh, you want them just when they start going clear after you've chilled with liquid nitrogen is when they start being good again. Otherwise, like, uh, they, they don't end up being balanced, and anything too much more than slushy in it is literally painful. It's so cold. Uh, in terms of foams to put on the top, you know um, – Methocell F50 makes a, a nice foam, but it's still pretty uh, dense. Um, I have to think more about this. Uh, you might it might end up being shorter for you just to just to shake the dang things, like pre blend some egg whites and just shake. The, I, mean, I understand what you're trying to do something different here. I don't. Know, what do you think, Harold? Any any feelings on the foam? I mean, I know that should be my kind of a, a of a of a thing. I mean, you could use ISI uh, and then do like a really like a, a like a lighter a lighter foam, but I mean, the egg white foams are also somewhat fugitive, which is nice. And most of the foams that are made aren't they're either have a very large bubble size or they're not so fugitive, but try Methacel F50 or VersaWhip uh, under a percent. They make a really nice foam that's quite stable and you could probably make a slushy and then stri- like literally spatula the foam in, strike it off the top and then uh, draw a design in. What has Piper been using recently? Remember, he's been making some foams recently for cocktails. He yeah. made he he actually literally whipped egg whites, I think, and put it on top. Could do that too. Mm-hmm. Whipped mm-hmm. egg whites. You could take egg white powder, hydrate it with some flavors, uh, and then whip it. 
uh, not with alcohol though, but like whip it and then and then strike it off the top and draw with the bitters. Right, that would work, mm-hmm. right, Harold? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, second question is about grilling vegetables. I enjoy really well caramelized zucchini or brown zucchini, I guess. Unless it's, well, no, probably some sugar in zucchini. Yeah. 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 Both. Both. Uh, most people would say uh, bordering on burnt. The flavor that develops with a good garlic marinade and that mesquite smoke and the vegetal flavors is out of this world. Unfortunately, they end up very delicious but a bit mushy. I'm wondering if some type of calcium slash pectin treatment might help here. I'm cooling uh, with a raging grill, uh, cooking with a raging grill and the coals right up under the food. It's charred to my satisfaction in about two minutes if that helps. Thanks very much for your great work. Looking forward to the MoFad puffer. Um... I don't think the I don't think you need to ferment, right? I think it's more of a water problem, right? That's what the mush is. I would I would par dehydrate the stuff. What do you think, Harold? Uh, that and maybe just chill it. You know, put put them in ice water so that when they go onto the grill, they're really cold, and so the inside will just take that much longer to heat up. Oh, so you think he wants to keep it? See, I was thinking want it more chewy. Then I mean, zucchini has too much freaking water in it, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't really. Yeah. I mean, I have issues with it. It's got so much water in it. Yeah, yeah. And if you're going to char the outside in two minutes, there's no way to get the water out of the inside, right? So you you have two choices. Either try to keep it raw on the inside mm-hmm. or try to get rid of the water beforehand. Yeah. Or, I mean, look, you could try a calcium bath. That will firm it up a little bit, but that will make it bitier, but it won't won't change the fact that moisture is going to migrate from the inside of the zucchini to the outside of the zucchini and ruin your crust. Well, except that's not what he's saying, right? He's saying that the crust is fine. It's just the inside's a little mushy. So uh, I, I think maybe the uh, first thing I would try, because it's very simple, is just put, put the zucchini in ice water for half an hour before they go on the grill. See if that takes care of it. If it doesn't, then take more drastic actions. But if it's just you know the matter of uh, preventing the inside from getting quite so hot, that should take care of it. Right. And what do you think about for dehydration, do the paper towels microwave thing? Yeah, yeah. Or, or you know, I, I don't know how, how exactly he's presenting them, but, you know, you could also cut them into slices and salt them. Uh, oh, all like kinds you, of, like all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, anything you would do for eggplant to get rid of moisture, you could probably do to zucchini to get rid yeah. of moisture, right? Yeah. Okay. Adam writes in. Here's a good one for you. you read this one yet? Adam writes in. Dear Nastasha, Jack and Joe, my question is for Dave uh, and for Harold. Little did you know. Uh, what do you make of the recipe for fermented juice of mushrooms and oats in the Favikin cookbook? If you haven't seen it, which I have not, the basic idea is steamed salted mushrooms and grain. After cooling, combine with sourdough, a sourdough starter overnight. Seal in a jar for six months. When you open it up, it should have a fleeting odor of peaches. That's the cookbook pros right there. Uh, the fresh juice doesn't last long, so Nilsen, Magnus Nilsen, recommends allowing it to turn to vinegar or pasteurizing it. He describes the pasteurized product as being like soy sauce. He also stresses that anyone who attempts the recipe should not eat it until it's been analyzed by a lab to determine whether or not it's edible. The procedure is somewhat similar to mixed yeast bacteria fermentations of the Chinese yeast ball that McGee likes. Here you are right here to talk about it. But I've never read such uh, about such a long sourdough fermentation or one that isn't cooked afterwards. It's strange. Just what is happening and what's your opinion on the food safety? Thanks for the thought. Well, I, I looked into Sandor Katz's uh, book. I mean, I think, correct me when I'm wrong, I'm going to let you just take this for a minute, but the sourdough thing is just to kickstart the fermentation to get the pH low enough so that botulism doesn't grow first, right? Isn't that the what the deal is, and after that, it's just going to take over on whatever it wants to do. Yeah, and the part of it that I don't understand is why do you have to seal it? I mean, because that would, uh, you know, remove the issue of bot- botulism bacteria anyway. Well, I mean, look, so the recipes for fermented mushrooms that I could get were, they were all pushed under the water to encourage anaerobic stuff after the pH is dropped, right? I uh-huh. mean, lactic acid stuff yeah yeah um sauerkraut kimchi style right but then why do you have to seal it yeah yeah and and have it out of view i mean why not do it like a like a sauerkraut fermentation where you can kind of check on it see how it's going whether you've kept everything submerged or not that kind of thing uh also i i would i don't think i would ever myself want to make a dish that i had to have a lab check before i could I mean, that just sounds like legalese. <laughs> I mean, like, if you check the pH before you start the fermentation, then it should be everything should be copacetic. If it's acid enough, you won't have botulism. Yeah, acid and salt. I, I imagine there's salt in there as well. Yeah, but right? I, I mean, again, I'd have to know the levels. But yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, but if it's tart enough, the botulism is not going to. I mean, like that's essentially how pickles work. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mush- uh, non-acidified mushrooms are dangerous to to keep for long periods of time in the absence of oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. That much we know. That's the classic thing to kill yourself with: poorly canned uh, non-acidified <laughs> mushrooms. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. Uh, really quickly. Andy writes in about Ikejime and Botarga. Uh, hey, Nastasha, I have a couple questions for you, Dave, and the Cooking Issues crew. I wrote in a year and a half ago about Ikejime spinal cord destruction, which is where, but for those of you who don't know, uh, you take fish, especially like pelagic fish, fish that swim around a lot, and when you kill them, you can increase the quality of their flesh by shoving a needle through the spinal cord to uh, disrupt it. And the theory being that you, you, by, by destroying the spinal cord, you're preventing any sort of electrical messages from going to the muscles that happen regardless whether the brain is still present. Therefore, uh, increasing uh, the amount of ATP that remains in the muscles because it's not being used uh, to respond to these errant electrical signals, and that therefore it takes longer to go into rigor mortis, and when it goes into a less strong rigor mortis when it comes out the flesh is firmer and better that's in a nutshell the theory of what's going on okay uh so he tested it for us um okay uh and, and i had always been interested why, you know, why people don't do it on bluefish and it's because uh, i don't think in japan they eat much bluefish even though i think it's a delicious fish are you a bluefish fan i love bluefish delicious right yeah. uh okay uh i wrote about uh, a nikajime spinal cord destruction test on bluefish in alabama i'm heading back to alabama next week and we'll be trying the test again likely on a ro- wider range of fish as well after my trip last year i read somewhere that one should only use iced salt water or seawater as opposed to fresh i was using fresh water from the rinsing hose at the end of the pier and the results were we're clearly still far superior to non-Ikijime uh, uh, spinal cord destruction. Any thoughts on this? I will, be, of course, trying it, but I may not have the capability to do a side-by-side salt versus fresh. Any other suggestions for tests that I could run while I'm down here? Well, the reason for salt is so that the, the, the heart keeps pumping and that you're not putting it into shock right away so that you can keep that going. And also, uh, you want to keep it relatively isotonic with the fish. So salt water is obviously the best call, but I don't really know what the effect will be. You know, do you have any? Yeah, no idea. Yeah. Um, and I don't have any suggestions right now for other tests you should run, but please just let us know what all of your tests are because this stuff's fascinating to me, and I want to know how good bluefish is after it comes out of it. Because bluefish, everyone says it doesn't keep, but if you were to do spinal cord destruction but don't fillet it now so that the oils aren't exposed to the oxygen, could it become a fish that keeps longer? Uh-huh. I don't know. Uh, my second question is about botarga, which you know is salted uh, cured roe, typically from uh, mullet, and what's the other one? The one that uh, the, what's the other one they make botarga? Oh, well, tuna in the yeah. Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, in Alabama, we often go uh, cast netting for mullet, and I'm quite interested in making my own botarga. It's really expensive here. It's really freaking expensive here. Uh, Nastasha does not like botarga. Yeah, uh, Not sure if this is the right season, but I had a couple questions anyway. Uh, there seems to be a fair number of recipes techniques out there, and this seemed perhaps the best. Soak the roe overnight in a salt water solution, 10 grams of salt per one liter of water. By the way, the soaking is there just to leach out the blood and any sort of other strong flavors that are there. I don't think that's actually a cure step. Yeah, that's just, what, uh, 1%? That's yes. l- less than a tenth of a percent, right? Uh, or, or no, one. yeah, 10 grams per one liter, yeah, one, okay, 1%. one, one percent, that's yeah. roughly yeah. isotonic, right? Yeah. It's just yeah. to not ruin it, not blow the eggs up, but soak the stuff and get it out. You don't want to soak it in pure water because then you'll, you might blow the eggs up yeah. because of osmotic pressure. Yeah. Uh, remove the solution and pat dry on paper towels. All good. Lay out fresh paper towel on a tray, liberally sprinkle with salt. Okay. Place row on top and cover with more salt. So far, so good. Uh, place this in the fridge, replace the paper towels daily, add more salt, right? So the cure is taking place at low temperature. Uh, after three or four days, the rows will have firmed up. Use a skewer to poke a hole and tie with butcher's twine a long loop. Hang the row in a cool place to dry for 10 to 14 days or longer if desired. This seems like a good technique, but I wonder if there are other better ways. I would put them, uh, I would put them in a curing chamber, but of course I won't have it in Alabama. I also wonder if cool, dry place would cause uh, case hardening. My thought is to salt them for a few days in the fridge and put them on a rack or hang them outside in the sun to dry them. Dry them. The air would be humid and hot and most likely breezy. With enough salt... I'm not that worried about contamination, but should I be? Then I could take them home and put them in my curing chamber for longer drying and eventually backpack them for storage in the fridge. I would dip them in wax. That's the traditional way, not to backpack them, although backpacking will work. But dipping in wax is the traditional way Yeah, and pretty cool. Uh, any thoughts would be appreciated. Okay, Andy, uh, I got a treat for you. 
Uh, it's not Alabama. It's Florida. But if you go to the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition or simply type this into your uh, browser, solar drying of seafood products, colon, mullet row. They did a bunch of experiments uh, literally on the open-air drying of mullet row to make botarga in the 70s in Florida, which is fairly similar to Alabama. And you can look at it. And your main problem is actually not going to be case hardening, although they do mention it, I think, in the paper. Your main problem is going to be that unless it's fairly covered, you see, you need to inc- – the, the, the temperature of the mullet row needs to go above uh, atmospheric temperature because humid as hell. As soon as it goes above atmospheric temperature, which it will from the sun hitting it, right, uh, it will uh, start giving water off. And so it doesn't matter how humid it is as long as it's hotter than the outside environment because then the vapor pressure is going to be there. However, uh, it got so freaking hot. By the way, they used a word that I hadn't I, – I didn't know – Insolation, meaning how much sun hits, not insulation, <laughs> insolation, which is awesome. Uh, but uh, the mullet row that they were testing uh, that had uh, like a plastic covering, like greenhouse, that let the uh, sun hit it, but had screens all around it so air could waft through, 150 Fahrenheit that stuff got up to. Hot enough to cook your huevos. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so go read that paper, and that should give you some good uh, suggestions. Now, before they rip me, my microphone away from me and kick me off the air, since Harold McGee is here, I want to talk about Clostridium perfringens and Rachel Dutton and these papers with salt-risen bread that I promised I would talk about before. Uh, so you want to give us a little uh, little clue in there? Who? Uh, why don't you get us started? Because that right. was a few weeks ago, and right. it's not in the front of my head. So here's what happened. A number of years ago uh, on the radio show, someone asked me about salt-risen bread, and I'd never done it before, so I, I made some as a test. Uh, and salt-risen bread is a, an interesting uh, – interesting because it's bacterially uh, raised product, and in fact, it's raised with an anaerobic bacteria, Clostridium perfringens, which is a, um, a pathogen, Right. Uh, and in fact, certain strains of it do really nasty things, like cause gas gangrene, which was a big problem in world in the World War One. I. I guess, and probably even after, but that's when it first became a big deal, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, so I made it, and the bread had a very distinctive taste to it that I, I remembered. Went to Africa uh, and tasted a cassava. Uh, like a like a, a dumpling that was made from cassava. Cassava, as you may or may not know, is redded, so it's soaked for a long period and allowed to, and that's to to get rid of uh, toxins in it, right? But it also goes through some sort of fermentation and picks up um, characteristic flavor. And when I tasted this, I said, "Oh, that tastes like salt risen bread." I wonder whether it's clostridium. <laughs> uh, Clostridium, Clostridium perfringens, same thing. And uh, so Harold and I were hanging out at, what was that, the World Science Universe or whatever it was called? That's right, yeah. World World Science Festival. Festival, yeah, yeah festival. And uh, met up with Rachel Dutton, who is uh, a, a microbiologist at Harvard studying various fermentation things. What's her actual field? What does she, she do for a living besides help chefs with uh, things? Uh, well, she, she has a uh, five-year postdoctoral fellowship essentially to kind of open up this whole subject to, to academic study, which it really hasn't been open to before. Nice. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Uh, who's paying for that? Uh, I forget who, who the fellowship is from. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, yeah. Pro- the problem is, is that usually work only gets done in food when there's money behind it, which is why most food scientists suck so hard. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, well, the avenue she's taking is to uh, uh, study cheeses in particular, but other fermented foods as model systems for understanding um, uh, microbial ecosystems. Because these things generally, cheeses, for example, you know, each cheese has a different set of microbes that ripens it, and it, it tends to be four or five, and it's relatively stable. And so understanding how all that works, uh, she feels, will help us understand microbial life in general. And that's the the uh, proposal that, that got funded. That's a good sale. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Strong. Uh, strong. So anyway, so she found an article showing that, in fact, cassava redding does indeed involve a uh, clostridium, not perfringens, uh, but um, one that produces butyric acid. I mean, I, I can't pronounce butyrins, whatever it is. Uh, all right. Yeah. Butyra. Something yeah. or yeah. other. But anyway, it's there. <laughs> so it turns out that, you know, th- this is, in fact, like half of how I ever accomplish anything is that I taste something different. I put it away in my memory bank, and then, like, years later, it, like, something comes mm-hmm. up. Is that how you work as well, Harold? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, and then Harold, because then I said, well, I wonder whether or not the clostridium in salt-risen bread is, in fact, not 
perfringens. I wonder whether it's this other one as well. And Harold found and emailed to me possibly the best article uh, I've ever read in my life. And I don't have it here, unfortunately. It didn't get pasted into my thing. But it is um, from 1923. And you want to – like this – isn't that like one of the coolest articles you ever read? It is. It is. They, they made salt-risen bread from a traditional starter standpoint. And then they also made salt-risen bread from uh, a culture they had taken off of an injured gas gangrene patient in World War One. So like some poor some poor fella who, you know, in the trench got hit with something, developed gas gangrene, which they isolated that strain and he baked bread with it. Yeah. And then ate yeah. it. Presumably, <laughs> because he said that, you know, he described the crumb texture and oh it's good, you know, kind of. Yeah. I, th- I think he ate it. And then 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 took the bread and recultured the bacteria from the bread to prove that the spores had not, because remember, folks, Clostridium is spore-forming, and was, in fact, able to culture it and inject it into guinea pigs and noticed that the salt-risen bread Clostridium was active but not as virulent as the one that was developed from the gas gangrene patient. So it is it's fantastic stuff and then specifically said it wasn't this other one because it had a different kind of fermentation. Fantastic paper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something you could never do today, right? No, walk but. up and just inject that into guinea pigs and eat <laughs> eat like baked bread with uh, baked bread with gas gangrene stuff. No, yeah. no, that's pretty cool, right? It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, good paper. Uh, and anyway, so but then uh, later work, um, later work, including someone who has a she has a salt risen uh, bread uh, uh, blog, Susan Brown. They did some paper where there's been never been a case. They don't really, I think, in the recent research, prove that it can't cause disease. They just show there has never been a case of disease from Clostridium perfringens and salt risen bread. But what do you think about? Are there any cons- would you have concerns making that in your kitchen? No, no, I've done it a couple of times, and and now I'm going to do it again because you've you know raised this whole thing. Uh, uh, for me again, but it, it is fascinating for exactly that reason. You take uh, foodstuffs, I mean, uh, milk and cornmeal and things like that, and it, it kind of intentionally let it rot, right, for a day, and then make bread with that. And uh, you do end up with this really interesting. Some people in my own family found it off-putting, but I found it really interesting flavor. Yeah, uh, I like it, and and it rises. It's um, yeah. Oh, redding is very interesting. So redding you do for cassava. By the way, redding, literally, you just take the stuff and you throw it in a big vat of water and you let it sit for a couple of days. And in West Africa, it doesn't take very long for it to do its thing because it's hot as hell. Uh, but, you know, Her- Harold has for now for several years been telling you about redded amaranth stalks. Yeah, yeah, which is how you make um, stinky tofu in China. You you let vegetable kind of waste vegetable materials. You amaranth leaves are delicious, but the stalks are so tough that they're inedible. You throw them in water and just water, no salt, so you're not doing a lactic acid fermentation and other things take over and you end up with something that's really stinky. Uh and then you can either serve that or you can put tofu in that same vat of stuff for a few days until it soaks up those flavors, and that's how you get sticky tofu. Has the microbiology of that been studied yet? Not to my knowledge, not not in you know English-accessible materials. Well, more work to do. Harold, thanks so much for coming on the air. We love having you. Anytime you're in New York, please come by and see us. Cooking right. issues. Oh, wait. By the way, thank you for the bacon mat and the bacon band-aids, whoever you are. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>